From Reboot, this is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo, here talking life during the corona crisis. I found one of the fun things about living here in the kingdom of the virus is that it affects everything. It is an all-encompassing problem, or what the Germans call a Gesamtzusammenballungfick. I don't speak German, but that doesn't change my point. When you're talking Corona, you can pretty much talk about anything. And today we're going to get into some politics because Corona didn't merely show up. No, it came to town in an election year for a whole extra layer of Zusammenballungfickenkeit. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess with things severely, both what the election's about and also how we run the election, the nuts and bolts methods of who will get to vote during this pandemic and how. Virus voting is a crisis that everyone can see coming, and my guest today sees it sharper than just about anyone. Brina Milikowski is a political strategist, a social entrepreneur, and the secret sauce in a huge number of progressive political efforts. She was the founding chief strategy officer at Mike Bloomberg's Every Town for Gun Safety. She's the current board chair of Narrow Pro-Choice America. And most recently, she co-founded the Voting Rights Lab, a campaign hub to fight voter suppression and transform America's voting systems. How she has time for this podcast, I do not know. But she says she does, so I'm very glad to have her here. Hey, Brina. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, so where are we finding you today? Where are you at? I am in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts, which is both a beautiful place to be hiding out and, like many people, uh, kind of a complicated set of extended family reasons why I'm here for the duration um, and not in New York City in my usual home. Um, you say for the duration, nobody knows, obviously, but what's your sort of over under, what's your, where, where's your head at in terms of what you think the duration is here? It's early May. What do you think? I'm on the, I'm on the longer horizon side of most of these conversations. I don't Are think, you? um, I don't think normalcy as we knew it will return for a while. Um, but there's so much uncertainty. It's hard to see. I don't think the life in the fall is going to be like what my life last fall was like, but I also don't know what it's going to look like or where I'll be. Sure. Which is pretty if- mind blowing. I've, I've been in kind of world war two mode <laughs> in terms of thinking about what a multi-year effort looks like until we really finally eradicate this from our lives. But it sounds like the scale of government resources that are needed, um, the scale of scientific innovation and probably technological innovation to contain, test, trace, <laughs> um, develop a vaccine, execute and distribute a vaccine, um, help mitigate all of the horrible economic consequences in the meantime, help people learn remotely, you know, all those different life things going on, I think is going to be a, a kind of a multi-year shifting effort. Yeah, I've never, I mean, Which is pretty I've, wild. Never, I've never been like, involved in a war. I mean, I wasn't in the military, but also just as a country, like people, you know, roughly our age haven't really felt the impact of being in a war. The country's sent military to other places, but I, it struck me. Well, as certainly like, not oh, most of us, right? Yeah. I mean, we've, <laughs> we've had, we had a very, we, we've been in a war since since 9-11 that only, you know, a very small portion of the, of the country has served in and really have, have felt. felt. Right. And yeah. now, right. Now we're talking about, um, a much more universal 
experience. Um, so there's some interesting questions emerging about um, both how this is good for the, for our communities and for our country, right? There's a lot more neighborly action going on. Um, levels of polarization have dipped a little bit in the last few months. Um, but at oh, the same time, because we don't have a, a little bit, there's some, in, there's, there's some tracking and some um, uh, indications that, you know, we've been seeing off the charts polarization for the yes. last several years and that right. there's um, something about the social fabric that's, that's coming together or at least stopped fraying horribly um, in the uh, last That's few positive. Months. I didn't know that because I've just been sitting in this house with my family and we're, <laughs> well, our social fabric is up and down, you know, just right, yeah, that's more right. of us. We've all got our own like <laughs> micro community issues going on <laughs> within our four walls. That's um, what I'm going to start to call it. I'm when, when now when I argue with my kids, I'm not going to say I'm fighting. I'm going to say we're having micro community issues. That's right. That's right. Um, yes. So there is also, so we're in this funny moment where you've got people all over the country looking to Governor Cuomo or to Governor Inslee or to some mayors who have emerged as real thought leaders. Um, you know, the mayor of Seattle, Jenny Durkin, said pretty early on in this crisis, um, we have no good choices, but we can make good decisions. And I feel like I've been saying that in my both professional and my personal life almost every day since, because it feels, again, both applicable to our micro communities and um, a very transparent and pragmatic uh, window into what executive and, and other government officials are faced with right now. You know, we need to trust our leaders to make good decisions to make the best out of a pretty bad situation. Right. And then, of course, there's the election coming up. That is, <laughs> right. all of this will be the context for um, tell me, tell us about Voting Rights Lab and when you came to it, and then we'll talk about Wisconsin. Sure. <laughs> um, so I um, helped stand up the Voting Rights Lab um, in 2017 with some other former colleagues and collaborators of mine, most of whom I had worked with at Everytown, actually, and had great experience running state legislative campaigns fighting the NRA. Um, and looking at the 2016 election and also looking back at the 2014 election and realizing how um, changes in voting laws at the state level had uh, potentially impacted really important state election outcomes. Right. Um, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in Wisconsin didn't vote because of the new voter ID laws. Uh, 2014, the North Carolina Senate race was determined by um, about 20,000 votes, but about 60,000 people had been affected by their change in voting laws, and there went the Senate. So um, there have been lots of instances in the last uh, 10 years or so, um, in part since the Supreme Court made it easier for states to run wild passing new voting laws um, that had really that, negative impacts on people's ability to exercise the right to vote. So um, that, was the, we could that add was the Voting Rights Act decision? Uh, yeah, exactly. Shelby. Um, yeah. And so since then, states have had more latitude to pass um, laws that limit access to the vote. And it look, it's been part of a overall strategy by a segment of the right um, to rig the system in all kinds of ways um, on the theory that historically, um, when people turn out, they tend to vote Democrat. Um, and when you make it harder to vote, they tend to vote Republican. And there are some very stark examples of that in the last few years. Um, and so 
part of the Voting Rights Lab work has been to fend off some of the <laughs> worst of the worst efforts moving through the states um, and to pass proactive measures to help expand um, voter accessibility and participation. Yeah, and it's mostly through legislation or are you active in the courts as well? Mostly through legislation. There, the kind of the movement already had great litigators and there's um, there are lots of great community organizations doing a lot of this work, but a limitation to litigation is that it's slow and it sometimes doesn't get done in time. And it's reactive. It's also you like you're dealing with the laws that are that are there rather than proposing the ones that you should be there. Exactly. So we just identified a niche, uh, which was trying to um, leverage um, campaign expertise and legislative strategy expertise. And in particular, um, the Voting Rights Lab um, is cross-partisan mm-hmm. um, and has some expertise and and connections working with Republican legislators, too. And cons- looking at the map, um, most of the states are still controlled by Republicans. So having that capacity and that expertise and being able to add that um, to the civic engagement and voting rights infrastructure was a nice value add in the last few years. Right. So you're doing all this work since 2017. Uh, there's already plenty to do. Mm-hmm. And then and then Corona comes along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what happens? <laughs> I would say everyone who's been working on voting systems, voting rights, and also anyone having anything to do with what was already on track to be the biggest, most expensive, and arguably most important election of our life, um, everyone involved had their hair on fire <laughs> since March trying to figure out um, what to do um, and taking a hard look at our election systems, our election laws, the way that they're administered um, to make sure that every registered voter can exercise their right to vote in a way that is healthy and safe, both for themselves um, and the people who work there. That is a really complicated, (laughs) uh, wild goal (laughs) to achieve in this environment. Um, I mean, the bottom line is that very few people in this country tend to vote by mail or absentee. But what we all realize needs to happen this year (laughs) to ensure maximal participation, Um, right? The ideal situation is that every registered voter gets a ballot mailed to them um, and they have the option to mail it in, drop it off at a secure location, um, or still vote in person and keeping some in-person options available um, is really important to ensure maximal participation. But we've also got to make sure we do that with the right logistics, PPE, cleaning products, organization to keep those those places safe for voters and for poll workers. That sounds like an enormous amount of work to get done in a very short amount of time. Am I reading that right? <laughs> <laughs> it is because, um, you know, we don't, we have one election day in this country, but we don't have one election system. Uh, the constitution leaves it to the states to determine the time, place, and manner of elections. And some states have a lot of variation even by county or precinct. So we have at best 50 different election systems and really hundreds, if not thousands. And there are dozens of technical details that sound mundane, arcane, whatever, um, but a slight variation in them could have enormous impact in terms of accessibility um, in terms of voter participation, in terms of whose votes get counted. So what's an, what's, what's an example of such a uh, seemingly small mundane thing, but that would have an outsized uh, effect? Really important one 
is whether um, ballots, mail-in or absentee ballots need to be sent by election day, postmarked by election day, or received by election day. Well, one, um, you, yeah, received by, you can't really control that. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, especially, I mean, I know, I know, and uh, no, not throwing any shade at them, but like the postal service is working more slowly now than it was a little while ago. <laughs> That's so. right. Um, but there's also this culture shift that needs to happen because for people who never have before, it feels really different, <laughs> um, right? And it's not how some of us were raised in terms of the civic engagement feelings about voting yeah. to do this at home by yourself, right? Or with your micro community that you're locked no, in your home no, with. No, I know for myself, like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a ritual that I enjoy is like going to a public place mm-hmm. and doing this, uh, you know, doing this civic act there among everybody else. Like a, it's something I brought my kids to, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, totally. it feels good. It feels good that it's a public thing. Yeah. Well, look, even before this year, I appreciated all of my memories of voting both myself and as a kid going with my parents, but I'm also appalled that people have to wait six hours, sometimes in heat, yeah, sometimes ridiculous. in snow, right? Just to like execute their vote. That's a crazy system compared to having it mailed to you three weeks in advance and having all the time in the world to research all the candidates and all the ballot initiatives. Totally. So Brina, if vote by mail is the answer to running a safe and fair election, what opposition to it are you seeing? That is a great question because the politics around vote by mail has been kind of scrambled in the last two months, kind of like everything else in our lives. That's how I see it. Um, Historically, this was a policy that was usually pushed by Republican legislators. Like it came to be in Washington state um, to try to increase turnout among rural voters who tend to skew older, whiter, and more Republican. Oh, just Um, getting to the polls on voting day, like they might have to drive 30 miles or something. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. But at the end of the day, um, why I love it, (laughs) um, is it's really a policy that helps everyone because, um, it's much, so many people in this country don't vote because of some combination of difficulty accessing the poll, difficulty with registration, um, inability to get there in time or to afford, um, taking hours off of work to stand in a long line, right? So vote by mail creates ease for all of those types of people. Right, for hourly um, workers or that sort of is, thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly, which is why um, there's been lots of research over the years that kind of shows it's a wash in terms of which demographics or which um, parties it benefits. And I've seen lots of polling on this. The vast majority of Americans want to make sure that there are some changes to to um, ensure the safety of the election. And they think vote by mail and absentee ballot is a perfectly fine and safe way to do that. Uh, Wisconsin most prominently, I think, is seen as you know the likeliest uh, tipping point state. There's a handful of others that could be Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, it's Michigan, et cetera. Um, we know the list. Of those handful, five, six, seven states, uh, which are the ones that you are most concerned about and doing the most work in? I'd say I have pretty equal opportunity concern. Mm. (laughs) I'm looking, you know, (laughs) yeah, I would say um, I think all the battleground states that people look to um, 
all all need all the work and all the resources that are going into them. You know, that's well, North Carolina, their, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona. But also, I mean, there's strategy? a reason Trump is looking at 15 states, right? And also zeroing in on New Hampshire, Minnesota, New Mexico, certainly Florida. Um, but all these places, you know, it can be a couple of thousand votes that can make the difference. What's their status now relative to what you think it should be? I mean, the good news is that all the states that we're all talking about, um, they all have some kind of absentee ballot process. Um, the pandemic certainly <laughs> um, is a good reason for you to request an absentee ballot. Um, if, but beyond that, um, there's work in every state to scale that process and make it workable in this new environment. Um, and that can go a lot of different ways. Like in Nevada, there are only a million voters every year, about. Um, most places have about three to 6% absentee ballot. So, you know, they only probably were prepared to print 30, 40, 30, maybe 60,000 yeah. ballots this year. And now you should expect that they might need 800,000 ballots. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Right. So it's just like a print. This is where, again, it's both mundane, but logistics. Oh, but um, physically and printing cost. and distributing those things is, yeah. Exactly. Not, not and then I've never done the, that. You need the machines and the staff and the size of a secure location to process all of those. <laughs> Certainly, most poll workers who are at in-person polling locations um, are overwhelmingly older mm-hmm. retirees. They are probably too vulnerable of a population to be doing this work this year. That's a good um, point. Those, yeah, those folks are often like the backbone of how election day works and they mm-hmm. are out of the picture for this year. Mm-hmm. So there's some, um, there are some good ideas kicking around about how to recruit and train younger cores of workers in particular you know, you've got college students whose summer jobs may be disappeared, who may or may not be going back to school in the fall, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of other people who with reduced hours and income. So there's there's definitely labor pools available for this, but it's a huge effort to figure out how to sort that and create the right training and get the right people involved. You feel like you could get this done? I believe we could get it done because we would have to get it done and we can figure out how to get it done. Mm-hmm. But if you talk to a lot of voting rights experts, especially the more technocratic ones, <laughs> They will always remind you, any change in election system usually takes years to implement and get right. So the fact that we are talking about whole scale changes, not just one technical change at a time, and that we're talking about doing it in all 50 states in six months instead of in one state over three years is horrifying to the the technocrats in this conversation. This is the sort of thing that wartime, so to speak can sometimes bring about. I mean, things can happen faster in that situation, but you need people to agree that that you're all wanting to point in that direction. And the good news is there are enough characters across the political spectrum and across key states that are committed to that vision. Um, You've got a lot of governors thinking that way, and and it's not always partisan. Um, Governor DeWine in Ohio, Governor Sununu in New Hampshire have both been very vocal about the need to go to uh, 100% absentee ballots and and a commitment to kind of making the system work safely for people. Should it just be up to a, the governor's office? I mean, I think that was what was uh, part of uh, what was contested in the Wisconsin case we saw, you know, a month or so ago. And those now iconic pictures of people being yeah. forced to line up outside to vote in the middle of a uh, pandemic. 
horrible. <laughs> horrible, uh, but maybe also useful as a signal of here's what happens if things don't change. In a lot of ways, the Wisconsin primary was a horrible thing to watch. And, you know, Milwaukee public health officials said they've already traced dozens of people who have gotten sick um, from contact with people voting that day, which is horrible to think about. Um, On the other hand, um, it really was a testament to some good organizing and um, had a bunch of indications about how voters are able to shift around the culture of voting because the... Um, everyone involved in the election pivoted only a couple weeks before to trying to get as many absentee ballots into as many hands as possible. Um, and overall turnout was up, not down. And it's both brave and horrifying that a lot of people were willing to risk themselves to do it in public, but 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 absentee voting was, was up very high. Um, so that bodes well, right, for where yeah. we're headed in November. So, Brina, this is, uh, you know, it's a reboot podcast. I'm asking everybody, during the crisis, what is the Jewiest thing that you have done so far? Mm. Well. There may, there may be several. You can run them down in ascending order. Or just yeah, pick your favorite. I, say other than, you know, anxiety, guilt, and fear that I'm racked with every day. That's a big top three um, right there. Yeah. Definitely a big cultural phenomenon we can relate to. Um, no, I mean, I guess uh, from a ritual perspective, I, I've, I've thought differently about Shabbat um, mm. since being in this uh, kind of infinite loop that we're in at home. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, both because it's nice to actually count the days and demarcate time. And I feel differently about um, kind of preserving some yeah. quiet time and space on, on Saturday, but also um, I'm now uh, I'm, I'm quarantining in a way with um, my partner and sister and parents, and we've had Shabbat dinners together, um, lighting the, lighting the candles. And um, my sister even makes hollow sometimes, which I still am not capable of doing. And um, yeah, and the Friday night and Saturday moments are nice. But there's something about, I'm kind of thinking differently about what it means to be a Jew in this context of quarantine and this pandemic too, in this like epic cultural, global cultural shift we're experiencing to think, you know, part of what it means to me about being Jewish is that we're connected to this much larger tradition and set of rites and rituals and community that transcends where we, you know, proceeds and transcends where we live right now. And Mm my family and our people have all moved across borders a lot and uh, survived right different empires and different cataclysms and catastrophes. Um, And so it's interesting to be kind of living through this global catastrophe that is global. (laughs) Right. It's a thing to be survived. Yeah. And so, and, and so you're conscious of surviving it in that context. I do feel like part of our history and tradition means I'm confident we're going to survive and transform and adapt as we need to. Oh, we're getting Um, through this. So, you know, that's like the headier part of the Jewy stuff I'm doing, that and eating more challah. Brina, thank you so much. I hope the right thing happens. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you as always. Uh, So that's it for this in quarantine. Until next time, I'm Steve Bodo saying, I I know, but it's actually pronounced are not.